can grab a seat, and if you've got a Bible, you can open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're at the very tail end of 1 Peter 1 together. We've been there for quite some time, and we're going to be there again this week. Last week, we took a look at, if you were here with us, uh, kind of be a refresher. If you weren't, it'll kind of get you up to speed on where we are. But last week, we took a look at um, what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23, 24, and 25, as he talks about what really is, we said last week, the foundation underneath all the framework of the Christian life. So all the commands in the Bible rest upon this one cause. Right? Everything that we are called to do, we see, is built upon what God has done. In verses 23, 24, and 25 of 1 Peter chapter 1. And what we saw there last week is the fact that God has caused us to come alive from the dead. Right? That he's given us a new birth, that we've been born again. Peter said that back up in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. He talks about it again in verse 23 of chapter 1. And we saw last week that while the framework of the Christian life, what gives it shape, right, all the commands of things that we are to do ultimately rest upon what gives it support. Right? There's a framework of the Christian life, all the commands of being holy as God is holy, but the, frame, the foundation of that, the support structure system for that is the new birth. Because apart from the new birth, we will never... We will never have a solid foundation upon which to build that framework and give shape to our lives. We saw it's absolutely necessary because we're incapable of doing what God has called us to do because we saw in the text last week, we're like, we're, all flesh is like grass. It's limited and withers. It's finite and fails. Ultimately, it will fall. We saw that this new birth is generated by the gospel, that it's more than a restart button, right? Because it's not just you get a general pardon from God and then you now begin to try and pattern your life after Jesus, right? Because if you, if you looked at his life, Okay? If you just try and pattern your life after Jesus, after God forgives you, you've got no shot at trying to be who God's called you to be apart from God infusing his grace into your souls and giving you new life. Right? New life that comes out, a new operating system. It's not just a restart button that gives you a second chance, but a new operating system that now enables you and empowers you to be who God has called you to be. We saw that the new birth happens. When it happens, you begin to seek things that you used to avoid, and you begin to avoid things that you used to seek because there's new desires that you now find operative within your life. There's these new affections that begin to arise in your soul. You begin to move, move toward things you used to move away from and move away from things you used to move towards. Okay? There's, this, there's, this, there's this shift, a complete change in the, in the life whenever you find yourself to have been born again. And two of the changes, Peter goes on to tell us, two of the changes that happen in a life that has passed from death to life and has passed from darkness to light and has passed from despair into hope because they've been born again. Two of those changes, when you come alive from the dead, are the fact that you begin to find a new affection in your heart for the church and you find a new appetite in your soul for the Bible. You find a new affection in your heart for the church and a new appetite in your soul for the word of God, for the very scriptures. We're going to take a look at that second one next week, the appetite for the word of God. This week, we're going to take a look at this new affection that you find in your heart for the church. It's a new love for God's people. Jonathan Edwards, in his book, The Religious Affections, when he took a look at what it meant to have been born again, to come alive from the dead, he says this. He says, regeneration, the new birth. He says, the work of God that infuses grace into our hearts has a direct relation to practice. For practice is the end of regeneration, the purpose for which the whole work was wrought. In other words, the reason God took you out of the grave and gave you life is so that you would live differently. There would be something new about you, new about you. 
and that we would be distinguishable from who you used to be in the, as a dead person who was lying in the grave. And Jesus says in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, that one of the distinguishing features of someone who has come to life from the dead, who has been born of God, one of the distinguishing markers of them, listen to what he says in his own words. Jesus says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another by this All the people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says when everyone around you begins to peer and peek into the life of the church, how will they know you belong to God? He says they will know it by the way that you love one another. How will they know that you're a follower of Jesus? They will know it by the way in which you love one another. Now, this has a lot to say to a church in our particular culture that oftentimes when the world looks in, they see lots of things, but they may not see love. They may not see love for one another. Derek Webb, in one of the songs he wrote several years ago called T-Shirts, he says this. He says, they'll know us by the T-shirts that we wear as they'll know us by the way we point and stare at anyone whose sin looks worse than ours who cannot hide the scars of this curse that we all bear. He says, they'll know us by the t-shirts that we put on from our camps and conferences and retreats and Disciple Now weekends. They'll know us by the t-shirts that we purchase online or at local book Christian book centers. They'll know us by the t-shirts and the style with which we, which we dress. But will they know us by the marker that Jesus says we should be known by as love? He goes on to say, when love, love, love is what we should be known for. It's the how and it's the why. We live and breathe and we die. When the world looks at the church, they see a lot of infighting and backbiting. They might see a lot of gossip. They might see a lot of malice. They might see a lot of slander. They might see a lot of jealousy. They might see a lot of envy. But oftentimes, they fail to see the kind of love that Jesus says would be characteristic of those who say, I'm all in and all his. Do they see that kind of love? Do they see it? Is it demonstrated by practice in action? Remember what Edward says, you weren't born again. He says you weren't born again to be a mannequin in a storefront window that people can kind of drop t-shirts on and say, I belong to Jesus because of this right here on my t-shirt. You see it? Oh, it's on the back. Okay, you see it back here, right? That is not the marker, he says, of what a Christian is. It's not a mannequin in a storefront window, but individuals who have come from death to life, who now love in a way that they're like a manual labor force in God's kingdom. And they move towards the needs of other people to love them in very tangible and practical ways. See, you and I were not born again to stay like chunky and chubby babies. Anybody got one of those in your house right now? Right? We've got several families that have those in their house right now. And listen, when my kids were first born, right, before they became very active, right, they just had these rolls everywhere. Right? And some of your kids, you can remember those days, some of you who that's been a little bit further removed from others, but you remember those rolls they had everywhere. They were chunky and chubby. Right? But as soon as right, they kind of go through these developmental processes, it's maturation. And so they go from being an infant who can do nothing but lie there and stare at you on its back. And they begin to roll over. And then they begin to push up a little bit. And they begin to sit up a little bit. And they begin to crawl. Then they begin to walk. And when they begin to walk, 
right? What happens to all that baby fat that's kind of around their midsection and their cheeks look like a little chipmunk, right? All that stuff begins to kind of melt off and they get lean and active. See, you and I were not born again to stay like chubby and chunky infants who sit on the blanket in the living room and have someone feed us all day, every day. Right? Something has gone wrong in the maturation process if that's where you are. But we were born again to be lean and active children of God who are known by their love for one another. It's exactly what Peter says in the text that we look at this morning. In 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22, I want you to listen to what he says. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. If you take this verse, particularly verse 22, we looked at verses 23, 24, and 25 last week, but you take verse 22 and you set it into the larger framework and the larger context in which it exists. If you take it and set it in its context, here's what you see. You see that part of what it means to live as a sojourner, a resident alien, someone who lives in this country but is waiting for that country, the true country, a part of what it means to live as a sojourner is that there you find now, for those who have been born of God, who are citizens of the heavenly kingdom, you, what you begin to find is this. So there's a new affection operating in your heart for God's people that you never saw before, that you never knew before, that you never experienced before. You begin to love the church Whereas before, maybe you ran away from the church and despised the church. Maybe you said the church is full of a bunch of hypocrites. I don't want to be a part of that. Or the church has done nothing but reject me, not receive me. But when you cross over from death to life, what you begin to find is there's a love that begins to grow in your heart for the people of God, for Jesus' church that you've never seen before. And I think Peter helps us understand that love, wrap our minds around that love, and begin to practice that love here in verse 22. And that's where we want to dig in this morning. So that we might be a church, Redeemer might be a church, whenever the world peers in, when the world peers in, they go, they belong to Jesus. Because the whole world would know that we are his disciples by the way that we love one another. What's the first thing you got to see if you're going to stop being a chubby, chunky baby? First thing you got to see is this in the text. Peter says you got to be who you are. You got to be who you are. The command to love in verse 22 is connected, right? It's not separated from, but it's connected to the cause in verse 23. Peter says in verse 22, love. In verse 23, he says, since what does that mean? The command that I'm giving you here in verse 22 is rooted, connected in, built upon this cause in verse 23. Since you have been born again, since you have passed from death to life, love. So Peter says, be who you are, church. If you've been born of God, then you're living out of this new nature that God has pressed into you. 
When the grace of God become, comes to take residence in your life and the Holy Spirit moves in, you're living now out of who you are. You're not trying to force yourself to be someone that you're not. For those who have not been born again, listen, whenever they hear the command to love the church or they hear any of the commands throughout the rest of the New Testament or anywhere in the Bible, they feel like what they have to do is try and now force themselves to be someone or something that they're not. But for those who have been born of God, what they begin to recognize is that whenever they see these commands, now they're just supposed to live out of who they are now. Live out of who you are. Listen, I can remember the very first time with my son. Um, whenever he was, you know, probably uh, 12, you know, 12, 15 months of age, and we were at a restaurant, and he started kind of looking, like, eyeing our food, right? Thinking, man, that looks good over there, right? And so he started eyeing our food, and so we had the little lemons in our waters. You guys can probably relate to the story a little bit. The lemons in our waters, and so he started pointing at the lemon in the water, right? I want, I want to try that. I want to try that. I want to try that. And so me being the loving parent that I am, decided to expose him to that very early in life. And so I took the lemon out of my water and gave it to him. And so he goes and sticks it in his mouth. And as soon as he sticks it in his mouth, he looks at me and he goes, wow, like, whoa, what was that? It's because the lemon is sour, right? That's what lemons are. They're sour. Oranges are sweet. Water is wet. That's what they are by their very nature. That's what they are. And you and I ought to love one another in the same sense in which an orange ought to be sweet. A lemon ought to be sour. Water ought to be wet. A fire ought to be hot. And ice ought to be cold. Why? Because it's in their very nature to be so. And that God presses that into us upon our conversion when we pass from death to life. So you're not, what Peter's not doing, he's not coming to us and saying, now you've got to kind of ratchet up your will here and make yourself be someone that you're not, and you ought to love. But he says, no, love ought to flow from who you are now because you're no longer who you once were. You've been born again. See, for those who have that new operating system installed, they're not just living off of a restart button, but they actually have a new operating system. This love that is commanded, it supernaturally flows from them. And if you, leave, if you came in here today or if you leave here today and you go, man, I can never love someone the way that we're about to see we're called to love them. I could never, I could never love in that way. If you could never love in the way this text commands you to, then you need to go home and wrestle with whether or not the cause has actually happened to you. If you go, I look at that command, I can never do that. Then you need to go home and wrestle with whether or not the cause is there. Because you're not trying to force yourself to be someone that you're not. You're, trying to, you're living out of now who you are as someone who has been born of God. So, the, so Peter here not only tells us that you've got to be who you are, but he also says this. Listen, this kind of love, it's got to start in-house. It's got to start in-house. If you see this in both halves of verse 22, in the first half, or the second half, Peter says you should love one another. When he says that one another, that one another language shows up all across the rest of the New Testament, and it's referring to other Christians, people who are your brothers or sisters. In the first half of verse 22, Peter says it this way, we should have a brotherly love. A brotherly love. The supernatural love that flows out of who we now are as those who have been brought from death to life. This supernatural love Christians have for one another is like the love between siblings. Like the love between parents and a child, between a mother and a father, between a son and a daughter, between a brother and a sister, 
They're now bound together into a family. Into a family. That's the kind of love that Peter has in mind here. And he says it's got to start in-house. You should love one another. It should be a brotherly love. And this is so vital because at, at, at Redeemer, we want to, we've said it over and over again. Some of you are probably sick of hearing us say, we want to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries. That's our mission. That's our mission. To be a part of expanding the kingdom of God as God would be pleased to save and sanctify people and draw them to himself. It's our mission, share, shape, and send. And if we're going to engage a lost world, people who have kind of given up on the church because they've looked in and they've seen nothing but malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander and political jockeying for power, they're going to look into the church and that's what they're going to see. It has to start in-house, not just for the sake of each other, but for the sake of this mission that God has given us. And here's why. Here's why. Because that kind of malice and that kind of envy and that kind of slander and that kind of deceit and that kind of hypocrisy, they, people can find that everywhere. Everywhere. But where are they going to find authenticity? Where are they going to find those who can rejoice with those who rejoice and not envy them? Where are they going to find individuals who aren't two-faced and say one thing to their face and another thing behind their back? Where are you going to find people who want others to succeed as opposed to their malicious and want to compete with them? Where are you going to find people who will tell the truth but not in a way to run other people down, to slander them? Where are they going to find that if not in the church? See, when people look at the church and that's all they see, what Peter says in chapter 2, verse 1, they see envy and hypocrisy and slander and, and maliciousness. When they see that within the church, they go, why would I sign up for more of what I've already got? But when they look into the church and they see it's starting in-house and there's a brother or a sister who is in need, someone gets a promotion and instead of being envious or jealous of them, we rejoice with them. Instead of going, man, people should recognize that kind of value in me. No, we come alongside and we say, yes, we're super excited for you. Whenever people get wrong within the life of the congregation, within the life of Redeemer, within the life of a church, people come alongside and they forgive as opposed to writing them off. See, why would somebody sign up for more of what they already have? Jesus says the world will know that you're my followers by the way that you love one another. It starts in-house. In-house. See, one of the ways that you know you've actually passed from death to life is because when you begin to look at the church now, right, you still see the, all the warts, right, and blackheads and zits and moles, right? You still see the crazy uncles on the porch polishing their guns, right? You, you still see people who don't have everything together, and you still see sometimes a disfigured mess because sometimes the church is missing an arm or a leg or right, a mouth or some eyes or ear. You still see something that's not yet what it should be. You still see the, all those things, but you know what? The way you, one of the ways you know you've passed over from death to life is that you look at the, all those warts and all those zits and the, guy, you know, people, the, the church missing an arm, and you say, let me be the arm. <laughs> see the church missing the leg? I'm going to be the leg. I'm going to love these people well. You see all the warts and the zits, and you go, you know what? It's not the most attractive thing in the world, but I'm going to move towards them as opposed to away from them. 
Because you begin to see there's a beauty in all of this brokenness. That no one has everything put together and yet you still feel this affection for them. In the same way that God looked down on us and he goes, man, they're not a very attractive lot down there. <laughs> I'm still going to move towards them in love. One of the ways you know that you've passed from death to life is because you find this love for the church. One of the things that short circuits that love is the fact that you and I oftentimes in our natural state is that we're looking, we're, we're looking for I, the ideal and not the reality. Because we go, we go everything, everybody in here should be perfect. Everyone, no one should hurt me. No one should, should do anything right, that would harm me at all. No one should hurt my feelings. Everyone should agree with me on everything. <laughs> but what you find in the church is you find all kinds of people who come from all different kinds of places whom God is working on in process. You look at them, you say, I love them. I love them. I love them. And you move towards them as opposed to away from them. You seek them as opposed to avoiding them. Because they're a new, they're family now. You look across the room, you don't see some random strange person. You see a brother or a sister for whom Christ has died. And listen, for some of you, this is really good news. The fact that the church is a family, it's got a start in house, and that we should be loving one another well. And here's why. Because, because some of you came from very good families, very good biological families who showed you and patterned for you what families should look like. When you look at the church, you go, man, I, 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 why can't the church be more like my biological family? And some of you came from biological families that were very broken and very dysfunctional. Where there was more neglect than nurturing. And you know what you need? You need a body of believers, of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers to come around you and say, that is not what the family should look like. This is. This is. It's got to start in-house. But not only do we see who we're supposed to love, but how we're supposed to love them. If we're going to be known for our love, what, what, what kind of a love looks different than the kind of love that people can experience anywhere outside of the church? Peter says it's got to be a sincere and an earnest love. It's got to be a sincere and an earnest love. In the first part of verse 22, we see that the kind of love that we have for our brothers and sisters is a sincere one. And that word literally means this. In the, in the, in the Greek word that's up underneath that, it literally means this. It's without hypocrisy. And we've talked about this a little bit before in the past, uh, if you've been with us at Redeemer. But we've talked about how the fact that in, in, in Jesus' day, the hypocrites were stage actors in the Greek theater. And in Jesus' day, they would get up on stage and they would perform you know, productions and everyone from the community would come to see, but there were usually limited amounts of actors or actresses who could actually play those roles. And so what they would do in the process is they would take a mask and they would put the mask over their face and they would come out on stage for one scene and play a particular character or a particular role and they would, as, as the kind of, the, you know, they didn't have lighting back then. But as the scene would draw to a close and they would you know, be ushered off stage, they would put on another mask and come out and play someone else in the next scene. And so they would shift probably mid-play mid from one character to another. And they would go back and forth. And that's, that's what, what a hypocrite was in Jesus' day. Someone who was a stage actor. They were play acting. They were pretending to be someone that they were not. 
And the word underneath this word sincere in the Greek text literally means this. It means without hypocrisy. In other words, you're not pretending to be someone that you're not. So when you move toward other people in love, you're not just playing a character. You're not pretending to be someone that you're not. You're being who you are. It's coming out of what God has done. He's brought you from death to life. You're moving toward others. You're not trying to be someone that you're not. And you're not moving towards others in a way and kind of putting on a mask and pretending to be someone that you're not in order to get something from them. But you're moving towards them in love to give something to them. So here's a question. How do you know, right? If you're going to take a diagnostic in your life, how do you know whether or not the kind of love that you've exhibited to people all of your life or even right now, even within the church, is just kind of a hypocritical love, a play-acting kind of, a pretending kind of love? A couple of diagnostics for you. First, sincere love without play-acting is more concerned about others than it is about self. More concerned about others than it is about self. Let me ask you a question. Does your love for someone else in your life, does it trump the truth in the context of that relationship? In other words, do you go, well, I love them, so I I can't say that to them. (laughs) Or I love them. I I can't call them on that issue. Right? Even though I can see it and it's very glaring in their life, I can't move towards them and actually speak the truth to them because I love them. That is not a sincere love. That is a play-acting, pretending, mask-coded kind of love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, uh, Life Together, he was a, a, a martyr in Nazi Germany on account of his faith. But in his book, Life Together, he talks about what life should look like in community and the love that the church should have for one another. And listen to what he says. He says, most human love Most human love desires the other person, his company, his answering love. In other words, he responds now to the love that I show, but it does not serve him. Most human love, he says, desires the other person, but it can't come underneath and serve him because you want that relationship so badly that you're unwilling to actually speak truth to that individual because you don't know how they're going to respond. You don't know if they're going to walk away. You don't know if they're going to move away from you or move towards you whenever you speak truth to them. See, one of the ways you know you've got a mask on, one of the ways you know you're just pretending to care about people is if your feelings for them inhibit you from sharing the truth with them. Because you go, I, 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 can't, I can't push them, I can't take the risk of pushing them away because I feel like I need them so much. And listen, everybody struggles with that. I'll be the first one to stand on this stage and say, I struggle with that. As a pastor in this church, if I really have that conversation with that person about the patterns that I see in their life, is it gonna put, are they going to leave? Is it gonna drive, are they going to go away or are they going to push in? You might struggle with that when the relationship you have with your spouse, with your kids, with your parents. If I really tell them the truth in a, in a loving and gracious way, but I really press into the truth with them. See, if you're not doing that, you're not loving people. You're not serving people. 
It's a mask-coated kind of love. But in addition, sincere love without play-acting, it leads to sacrifice. In other words, it costs you something to love someone. It costs you something. A number of years ago, um, my brother's wife's brother, so my sister-in-law's brother, okay, follow the train there. My sister-in-law's brother was involved in a very traumatic accident. He and his buddy were driving home from college, and they pulled off the interstate to stop at a convenience store to pick up a few things and get some gas. And as they were moving through the intersection there at the interstate, somebody else ran the stop sign and blindsided them and crushed the passenger side of their car where he was seated. His name is Chris. And Chris was rushed to the hospital, and he spent months in the hospital. It became very evident very early on because of the CT scans and MRIs that were run that Chris had experienced a very traumatic brain injury. So much so that now, years removed from that accident, he still has, he's still absolutely dependent upon care from someone else. He's a young man in his early 20s moving toward being a music teacher. And he's absolutely incapacitated. He now, his life consists of a wheelchair that he's wheeled around from place to place in. His mother, who was a single mom and raised her son and daughter, and kind of launched them out into the world, now found herself in her 50s becoming the primary caregiver to her son. And now she spends her days, she spends her days changing her adult son's diaper because he cannot go to the restroom and relieve himself, straightening her adult son's head back into his wheelchair because his muscles are so cramped over. He has no control over any parts of his body. Pureeing all of her adult son's food in order to feed it to him, giving him nourishment as well through a feeding tube, putting her adult son into the bathtub to bathe him and dress him, take him to his therapy appointments. And I was just there yesterday as we celebrated my, my nephew, my brother and his wife's son, Nephew's sixth birthday. As I watched Jeannie, his mom, care for her son, Chris, I thought, that, that is love. That is love. Because it costs something. You think it costs her her social life? Do you think it severely restricts the kinds of job opportunities that she now has? But you know what? I've spent some time around her and her son, and never once have I heard her say a single word of complaint. It cost her something to love him. See, true love involves sacrifice. It costs God something to love us, to move towards us in love. And it costs us something to love others in the way that is sincere in a non-play-acting kind of a way. Because when you're just play-acting and you want to get something from someone, 
right? You'll move toward them and help them and serve them and care for them and show up on their doorstep with meals and take care of them. But whenever they can, they're no longer of benefit to you, what happens? You kind of pull back and you recede into the background. And you're no longer pushing in to serve and love and care because they can't do anything for you any longer. True love is when you move towards someone who can do absolutely nothing for you in return. Absolutely nothing for you in return. Jesus says you should, Peter says you should love one another with a sincere love. It's not, you're not putting on a show for anyone. But notice what else he says. It's also an earnest love. It's an earnest love. In the latter part of verse 22, we see that the kind of love we are to have for our brothers and sisters is a robust or kind of resolute love. It's a love that stretches us. It's a love that strengthens us. It's a very strenuous kind of love. In fact, the word underneath that in the Greek text, it talks about kind of this endurance that we have in loving others. An earnest love that's robust. It's full. It's deep. Some of your translations actually word it deep. A deep love that stretches and strengthens you in the process. Right, it's kind of like physical exercise. It's like physical exercise. The more you do it, the more strength you feel, right? Uh, back in February, I had a partial tear in my left hamstring. I've kind of been down um, over the course of the last six or eight months. Um, haven't been able to be as active as I would like. And listen, I can tell in the way that I feel, the way my body feels. I went from running 40 to 50 miles a week to, to sitting on the couch eating potato chips and watching football, okay? And so I, I, I went from high degrees of activity to very low degrees of activity. I can tell a difference in my body. Why? Because it's crazy. It's so counterintuitive, isn't it? That the very thing that drains you in the short run, okay, so you go out for a five-mile run or you go to the gym and you lift for an hour and a half. The very thing that drains you in the short run makes you more resilient and stronger in the long run, doesn't it? Absolutely, that's true. Right? So for me, as somebody who's kind of been off the wagon for the last eight months, right, if I try and go out and run 12 miles on ne next Saturday, that's not going to end well for me. <laughs> Right? But if you work up and you move from running two miles to three and three to four and four to six and six to eight and eight to nine, you continue to progressively stretch that out. What drains you in the short run as you push through barriers that you never thought that you could push through before ultimately strengthens you in the long run. It makes you more resilient, more robust, more resolute, more able to endure. That's exactly what Peter has in mind. Is that Christian love, when we love one another, the same is true. Right? For those of us who have never moved toward another individual in a loving action in our lives, we, our minds can't conceive of how we could puree someone's food and feed them every meal. But listen, I tell you what, Jeannie's love for her son Chris it didn't start whenever he was traumatically injured in a car accident, but it began the moment from the moment she gave birth to him. And it was all those small acts of love over the course of his upbringing that led her to a place where there is an endurance now to her love, that she moves toward him when he can do nothing for her in return, can't even communicate with her, can't even speak, because those parts of his brain are too damaged. 
But over the course of time, she was strengthened. And now her love is resolute and resilient and strong. There's a fervency to it. There's a frequency to it. She doesn't go, well, I I loved you seven years ago. Remember that thing I did for you seven years ago? There's an actual frequency to it to where it's not looking back seven years ago, but last week, today. There's an earnestness to it. There's an endurance to it. It means you don't ever look at any other Christian and say, I'm done with you. I'm writing you off. I'm expelling you from my life. Some of you have found this to be so true. Because some of you right now, you're in the midst of an endurance race of trying to love someone who is hard to love. But what you will find, what you will find is that as you step towards them in love, in small ways, in a little bit larger ways, in a little bit larger ways, in a little bit larger ways, there's an endurance there a year later that you never knew existed day one. Peter says it's a sincere and earnest love. It involves sacrifice, truth-telling, and endurance. It starts right here in-house, and it's us living out of who we now are, not trying to be someone that we're not. But notice where Peter says it comes from. And we'll close with this. Peter says, this love comes from a pure heart. In verse 22, it's from a pure heart. But you go back up to the beginning of verse 22, he says, having purified yourselves by obedience to the truth. So he says, you've purified yourselves because you've come underneath this truth. You've obeyed this truth. You've put yourself under this truth. And the truth there Peter is talking about is the word of truth, which gives birth to us, like James talks about in James chapter 1, which is the gospel. You've come to say the gospel is true. I'm going to put myself under that and stop trying to run myself over it or against it. But I believe that it's true. I believe that I'm fallen. I believe that I'm frail. I believe that I'm like all other flesh. I'm like grass. I'm going to wither and fall. But God's word endures forever. The truth of the gospel is always beautiful. I believe it. I'm going to put myself under it. You purified yourself by obedience to the truth. And now out of that pure heart, he says, you're to love one another. You're to love one another, he says, from a pure heart. You have to see, listen, if you're going to come underneath that truth, underneath the word of the gospel, what you have to see is that not only has God called you to love this way, but he has loved you in this way. He's not just said you should love sincerely without any kind of play acting or pretending And not only you should love earnestly with all kinds of endurance to stretch you and strengthen you, but that I have loved you this way. Frederick Lehman wrote an old hymn called The Love of God. And listen to what he says. The love of God is absolutely sincere because it costs him something. It costs him his son. He says the love of God is far greater than tongue or pen can tell. In other words, no one can wrap enough words around it. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The place in which you thought you could escape it, it's there. The guilty pair, speaking of our first parents, bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. 
Lehman says it cost God something. It cost him his son because his love is so expansive and it's so broad and it's absolutely sincere, but it's also incredibly strenuous. It endures to the absolute end. In the course of that hymn, he says, Oh, the love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless, how measureless, expansive and strong. It shall forevermore endure. The saints and angels, he says, they keep singing about it. It's forever their song. You can't get them to shut up about the love of God. And when that love that's demonstrated through the good news of Jesus Christ giving his life in our place and for our sin, when that gets dropped at the center of a life, and you realize you were loved that way. And God brought you because of that. He brought you from death to life. Now you're just living out of who you are. And the more you realize the depths of God's love and the more you plumb the, the, the fathoms down beneath the surface of God's love, the more you find yourself moving out toward others in that kind of love. It begins to change you. It begins to change you. Some of you know that exactly from natural revelation because you know, you remember, some of you students right now, maybe you're right there, right, where you begin to have these feelings for this kid that sits across the room from you, right? Maybe he's, he's cute or she's cute, and you begin to, like, maybe get, you begin to talk, and you begin to go out and hang out, you begin to date, right? And whenever that first kind of rush of puppy love comes in, right, what happens? Lots of people start changing, <laughs> Right? And the things that are dear and precious to the one that they love, they now begin to have an affection for as well. And the more you realize the depths of someone's love for you, the more you feel this gravitational pull to love the things that they love, to enjoy the things that they enjoy. In fact, enjoying those things and loving those things, you see, brings pleasure to them. And so you continue to push into those things. So the one that you love, Loves his church. He absolutely loves his church so much that he gave his life for her. And there is no way that you and I, there's no way that you and I can begin to plumb the depths of his love for you and his people without it having change in our lives. Begin to reorder and restructure our priorities so that we're not just pretending anymore with a mask on to care for people but we're moving toward them with truth and sacrifice. And no matter how long it takes, we continue to endure. Because there's something that's changing on the inside. Have you found that to be true? Have you found that to be true? If not... I'd ask you in the moments ahead, as Rob and, and Elizabeth come and lead us in a, a, a song of, of reflection, I'd ask you in the moments ahead that you would spend time in prayer, asking God to search your heart to see whether or not the cause has happened to you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it speaks so practically and convictingly in our lives. God, the way that it shows us 
who you are. In all of your beauty and majesty and glory and the way that it shows us who we are and all of our frailty and the way that it shows us how you have moved towards us in love. Father, I pray for us, not only in these moments, God, we're not trying to generate an emotional response, but I pray for us in the week that is to come. If we find ourselves unable to love others the way that you have called us to love them, Father, I pray that you would give us reason, reason to question whether or not the cause has happened in us. we find that we're absolutely unable to take off the mask and truly love people sacrificially with truth telling because we're too afraid to lose the relationship and because we're just trying to get something from them and God if we're quick to give up on people or we're quick to point out how we loved someone seven years ago but nothing within the last week God would you Help us to see whether the cause has happened to us. And Father, may you make Redeemer a church, a people. And when the world looks in, they say, they belong to Jesus. See how they love one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.